everybody, and welcome to this week's edition of Tellage Talks. Really excited for you to hear this interview I just did with Rafael Hernandez Brito. He is the bilingual Spanish voice of the Cleveland Cavaliers and of the Cleveland Browns, but his resume goes on and on and on. In fact, he is the first Hispanic sportscaster to have called finals in all three major sports in the U.S. He has expertise in MMA, in boxing. He did a car talk type of a radio program, and he just continues to add to his resume. He's a tremendous guy, an engaging kind of a personality, but if you understand the story of his life, coming from war-torn El Salvador, coming to the United States at age 15, 16, getting a degree in mechanical engineering, which basically he did not use because this guy just happens to be at the right place at the right time. He went from that to also getting into selling beverages, most notably the Coors brand, to the point where at one stage in his life, he just decided that he wanted to get into broadcasting. And the rest, as they say, is history. The mayor, Rafa El Alcalde, right here on Tellage Talks. Keep it uh, simple. Okay, Rafa, uh, first of all, welcome to the program, and thanks very much for letting me kind of unpack your story. I think you have a very interesting one. You grew up in El Salvador, and then you came to the United States when you were 16. Take me back to El Salvador, let's say the years prior to the Civil War. That was when you were about 11, 10 or 11 years old. Yeah, I was, first of all, thank you for having me. Uh, Sure. It's... You know, my, my years in El Salvador are, I get the way I can describe, I'm the youngest one of four. Okay. So to me, I, w- I always consider myself one of the f- so many that got caught in the middle of the conflict. Okay. You know, there's always, when there's a war, there's always, there's not just one side that is good and one side that is bad. They're all fighting for something that they believe is what they think they want. So I, I don't think it was, you know, a, a good side or a bad side. It's just that there were a lot of people caught in the middle of the conflict. And my parents and my family, I believe, was one of the thousands. And I remember my oldest brother, Carlos, is six years older than me, when he was like in his 15, you know, becoming a teenager, becoming yeah. a, he used to go out and there were parties back home. And this is, this is like late 70s when the conflict hasn't really exp- exploded. And then when I got to that age, my question was to my parents was always, you know, how come, how come Carlos was always going to the disco and going to parties? And how come I can? You know, at that age, you don't understand. And my parents, thank God, were very strict about us just, I mean, and that's why that part of my life into the conflict, the last four or five years of my life there, I hated it because my parents were so strict. We would go in the morning to school. And we would, my, parents, my father would pick us up from school, we'd come back home, and they would just, we would just be in, in the house. We weren't allowed to go out. If we played, we played a little soccer in, in the street in front of the house, but it safety, wasn't really... Safety concerns. Safety, yeah. And, you know, we, we had friends whose parents weren't as strict as my parents were, so it was kind of it's hard yeah. when you're growing up to understand, <laughs> even though now you look back and say, thank God, I think I'm still alive because... My parents, my parents were that way, so, you know, and then it, it's really not too many joyful memories really? because of that, because I think when I came to New York, I, I, I believe I, 
I felt that freedom, I felt that, that way of just being able to go anywhere because the, the world became more like the wrong place at the wrong time. Gotcha. It wasn't really that I was mixed up with the wrong people or anything, it was that you could be having a coffee but next to you, the table next to you, there was a guy that the guerrillas were looking for, or, or it was a guy that really? wasn't the guerrilla that the military was looking for. And unfortunately, they didn't really go in and ask questions and pick one guy up. You know, there was a lot of a lot of times where they would just go in and shoot around, or a bomb exploded. So it was it was more the case of the wrong place at the wrong time. And my parents were very aware of that. And you know they didn't want us anywhere near. So you were you were then 16 then when you came I, to yeah was I was, that, was I that was a result 15, of yeah. the war, was that a result of we have to get our children yes. we left hell away we, from yeah. here. My parents made the sacrifice to get us out of El Salvador because of the conflict. My my oldest brother graduated high school and came here. Most of the for the the biggest reason I think was during during those conflicts at the universities is where where most of the problems begin or the revolutions, you know, sure. and the, so my parents didn't want us to be part of that. Okay. So my oldest brother came in 1980. That's Carlos. Carlos, yes. And then my sister came to finish high school here because she had some issues with the school that she was going to. She was going to Catholic school and she was the best student in the, in the class, but the, na- the nuns used to take the kids to go feed the gorillas in the mountains. Oh, okay. And my father wanted no part of it. My father was like, listen, I'll give you money, I'll give you food, but my daughter, don't, I don't want my Keep daughter running. anywhere near that. So they, she got kicked, she got expelled from school. Wow. So they just said, you know what, just, just go to my, my, we have two aunts here, thank God, my aunt Anna and Anora that were living here, working here, and we, she came to live with one of them, and then my, my brother Benjamin graduated high school, who was a year older than me, and came. So when I was the only one there, it was, you know, I was, I, I remember vividly, I was sitting at a table just like the one we're sitting here, and my father came in and said, hey, you're leaving Wednesday. <laughs> you had no and notice. I, I was about Basically. to start my senior year there. And I was like, okay, but thank God I was young and stupid. I always say that because I didn't even think of anything other than I'm going to New York to... What were your thoughts of, were you more worried, or not worried, but you were more kind of relieved that you're getting away from a stressful situation or were you more stressed by going to, you're going to another country. To be honest with you, I wasn't stressed about anything. That's really? how young and stupid I you're was. You're young and I stupid. Was, yeah, <laughs> I, I was, the war didn't bother me until later when I became an adult and I realized how much it had affected my growing up. I got you. Okay. But during the time, you deal with it. You, you, yeah. you deal with the fact, and that is the sad part, I think, about those conflicts that they become normal, they become a part of life. We'll just playing baseball. Another day. In a sandlot, and also song is like a, a couple of bullets go off, and everybody hit the floor, and five minutes later you're playing baseball again. You know, it, it, it's gone. So it, it, that's yeah. the sad part, I believe, of, of of that kind of conflict that it becomes a part of the daily life. You kind of immune to you it. You get you become immune to it exactly, and then it's not normal. It, it's the new normal. It's, yeah. So it, it, that's the part that I you I realized once I grew up and became. <laughs> You know, became an adult. That it was, it wasn't a, a absolutely not a not a fun time. So you came to you came to the states. You're in uh, New York, yes. Long Island, or Long Island, Long yes. Island, and you stay with your aunt. Yes. And then you you graduate. You you you're a new student there. You go. 
you, you enroll at Boston University. Yes. And the interesting part of your story is that you're doing nothing that's even close to what you studied for. <laughs> you studied to be a mechanical engineer, no? Yes. Okay. I actually have a degree in mechanical engineering with a specialization in machine design. Okay. And I, I'm, again, I'm the youngest one of four. Of, I'm the youngest one of three other very, very good students. Are your students. siblings doing what they studied? Yeah, are your siblings doing what they study yes. for? So yes. you're the one that kind of went outside uh, the box. I always been the, I, you know what I learned the other day? I, I no longer say the black sheep. I, I, I always been the psychedelic shit. <laughs> <laughs> you're looking for the color in yeah. life, right? <laughs> you want, that's so, why you're the mayor. Yeah, right? So I, I was, again, I'm lucky I'm the youngest one because when my oldest brother Carlos came, he really had to figure it out all by himself. Gotcha. And then my sister, and then my other brother Benjamin. So when I came, they kind of knew the rope. So I knew I even had choices to apply to different schools and everything okay. like that. So I was lucky in that in that regard. That I, and again, luck that I didn't come to realize <laughs> later in life. But at the time, well, what appealed I, to you about mechanical the, engineering? What was it? I, I was good in numbers. I was good with numbers. I was okay. good with science. I was good. I enjoy. I enjoy the you know the 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 math and all that so okay. it's like and I, I really and to be if I had told my dad I was gonna go to school and pay at the time eighteen thousand dollars a year at Boston University wow. and I was gonna have a non-declared like he would have he yeah. would have never understood that. Yeah he wanted like I, I I could I should have gone to deliver a large and try to figure yeah. out what I was good at and then maybe go and then maybe economics, maybe finance, I don't know. That, so, would have, that would have never flat. <laughs> you're dad. like you're like the high school football star that has to declare a school yeah. and say I'm going to Ohio State yeah. University, and then everybody can everybody can breathe. Yeah. And then when you get to that age, uh, senior year, you go eh, maybe not Ohio State, maybe something else. Yeah. Or, or, so engineering was the thing, and and I I I, I entered in this program at Boston University, and it was fun. I, I didn't have the habits for it. But I made it through. You know, it was really long. It was just, you know, the the lab reports and the five calculus classes and six physics and and all these different things. There were classes that I literally went in and came out, and I don't think I learned a thing. But I wasn't the only one. It was like, but you know, so I graduated and have my mechanical engineering degree. And my biggest my biggest um, purpose was at that time to, to kind of become independent. My brother Carlos at the time had already, was already working gotcha. and he was helping, he helped, he's helped me a lot through this day. And you know, I just wanted to kind of cut the cord. Okay. So nobody once told me throughout my whole time that the job that I will be seeking were for pure citizens only because I wanted to work with jet engines. I wanted to work with McDonnell Douglas or with. with so there Boeing. was a there was a, a, a because a of national security. For, so you could not. I couldn't because, because I was only I was only a permanent resident at the time. Ah, I only had my green card. Oh, uh, gotcha. And I have um, like a year and a half to go before okay. I could apply. There's like a five year period that you have to be a resident of the U.S in order to apply for your And you didn't have the patience to wait for that because you want well, to get on no, the right. I, I, need to, I needed to work. You needed to I mean, work, sure. I, need, I needed to get a job. Gotcha. And, and, and so I tried to, and, and I was trying to work as an engineer. Gotcha. So that didn't work. And 
my next step was to join the Navy. Back home, I wanted to join the Army. And I even went without my parents knowing. I went to the to the, to the uh, mission exam, and my mom was like, you know, over my dead body. You, you're gonna, <laughs> you're not going to be joining this conflict. <laughs> you know, this is not like we're because, getting you away from this. Because back yeah, yeah, exactly. We, we, haven't you noticed that the other three siblings are out of here? So, but that was I mean, again, back in the day, me trying to trying to do something about it. I wanted to join the the army, which is. My, my, God bless my mom, she's absolutely right. But I, I always had that drawing towards the military. So, you know, I figured the Navy, I'm gonna go in. So I go to the recruiters and <laughs> the guy says, you know, listen, I can't give you officer training school because you're not a citizen. So you have to enlist. So here I am enlisting with a four year degree in, in engineering and everything. But I'm like, you know, hey, Let's do it. So I go take the exam, I pass it and everything again. And on my way to sign the contract, I stopped at my friend's house who had enlisted out of high school. Okay. And had just come back from the original Gulf War. And in my young, dumb mind, I'm thinking I'm gonna go by his house and he's gonna give me tips on how I'm gonna get through inside, you know? And he's telling you, run <laughs> away from this. Well, he gave me the best advice that, at that time that I had received. He said, listen, I explained to him, you know, my situation. And he said, Rafa, whatever you do, do not sign that paper unless it says in the paper that they will give you official training school when you get your citizenship. Ah. Don't think that because it's the U.S. government and the U.S. Navy, they're gonna do it. You go, and he, and he, he, the, this is the good thing. He said to me, the guy, the recruiter is gonna tell you, don't worry, Rafa, just, just, you call me when you're there, you call me when you get your papers, and, and, uh, and, and we'll get you there. He goes, and he won't even be in that desk like two months from now. Yeah. So forget about a year and a half. You, you wouldn't even know where to find him. So don't do he, this. So I went there and, and I said, listen, can we put it? He goes, don't worry about it. You call me. When you get your papers, you call me. I was like, okay, thanks. No. <laughs> so I went back home and I just didn't, again, I wanted to become an adult, I guess. So somehow, I don't know exactly how I got, but I went to this interview with Canada Dry Bottling Company <laughs> in New York. Went to the interview. And I got to the point where, you know, I was living in Manhattan with my roommate from college whose aunt was going into a nursing home. So we were taking care of her apartment in 58th and 5th Avenue. We were living in... <laughs> and I just got so... We were watching the war, the Gulf War, and, and I, like we would take turns and like we had a whole board of like where the troops were and I would sleep and he would look he would look into the thing. He was just like really not doing nothing but wow. watching, you know, back in the day, I think it was the first war that yeah. was televised live. It was, so, yes, yeah, so we were really we were really into that. But I got tired of it, so I went home. I went back to El Salvador. Oh wow. Without no knowing what, what what I was gonna do with myself. And when I was there my brother Carlos called me and said, because I had left his number as a contact, and he said, hey, they called from Canada Dry that you got the job. Whoa. So I'm like, Oof, I'm back. <laughs> What'd you do there? So you were a sales guy? I got $18,000 a year plus a car with gas. And that to me was... Heaven, baby. <laughs> <laughs> and all I had to... They, were, they had just gotten the rights to distribute bottles and James wine coolers. 
So I remember my first job was selling, buy 10 cases, get one free, up and down the South Bronx, in all the bodegas, all, little, all, little all the bodegas and all the supermarkets, yep. the Wabounds and the Seamar and the Sea Towns and the MetLife and all that. And that was my first job. And I got good at it. You know, they, they, the Canada Dry Bottling Company, the, the distributor, also had the rights to distribute Coors beer. Coors beer, mm, baby. And so I was, I eventually moved into an area where I was selling bows, and I was really good at it. I became a, a, a district sales manager, and then I moved to the brewery. Okay. And I was managing the national account. I was managing Yankee Stadium, you know, the bar outside, Stan's Bar. And we did, so I was part of the of the group that beat when when Coors Light came to the East Coast. Gotcha. Yeah, that was a big deal back and when it was beat just Bob in, and Bob Light and, when it and was just in Colorado. It was kind of like a sacred thing. Of, yeah, can you get a hold of? Some well, I think Miss, Miss, the Mississippi River was yeah, the, was the like border. The, yeah, and everybody knew the banquet beer, you know, that the yellow yeah. can. Yes, but nobody could get it over here, so they finally. You were the guy. You, well, I was part of it, and and. But you know what? I, I was I was good at sales. I was I got into Yankee Stadium. We weren't we weren't there before. I got into Stan's Bar and we, we were doing uh, Madison Square Garden. We had all wow. there was a there was a new there was a new um, sports bar that opened in Times Square, and I went in there and they had the hood of the Budweiser NASCAR car. Which I don't think it was it was Dale Earnhardt at the time. I don't forget okay. who it was. But so I went to the manager and I said, "Listen, how about I bring you the sh- the whole shell of the of the Cal Petty car, which was driving the course car at the time." So I remember we we it was a big thing because it was even on the paper when the whole the whole Cal Petty car, the shell of it, big deal. And they hang they hang it up on the roof, and Peter Coors came to the bar to see. It. So it was good. I mean, I was, but I was. You got to a point where. I was really good at it, but I wasn't really enjoying myself. Maybe I was burning the candle on both ends because I had to be in the morning to make sure my stuff went out. And so you did was your work. Entertaining. Maybe drove a couple of times when I shouldn't have back in the day. And, and one morning I didn't want to go to work. So I just, you know, I told my boss, I said, how long, how long do you need? And I'm out. Okay. So. And so you, you're at that point where you, you want to switch. And the date, October 15th, 1988, is significant. That's the date when Kirk Gibson hit that hit the yes. home run. You had heard that, so how old were you then? You were like 19, 20. You were in college. 1998? No, I'm out of college. It's 88. 1988. 88, yeah. I'm 88, I'm in college. I remember that clearly. So you heard that call. Something in that resonated with you? Ah, a lot. You know, it, again, I always had, I was always the sports person in my, yeah. in my, in my, in my family. I play sports. I love sports. I, I follow my father up and down on the weekend when he played, even when he was retired. And, and, and I was in college and I remember Jack Buck. Jack Buck had the call. He had the call. I don't know. Don't get me. Don't don't ask me why I was listening to the radio instead of watching it on TV. But I always had that thing about watching on TV and listening on the radio, because I like the more the painted stuff yeah, as they opposed to the, the conversation, yeah. you know. And the thing that came to my mind, and to me, I didn't really, you know, comment it to anybody. And it's not something that I was like, I want to do that right away, but. I was like, man, that has to be the best feeling in the world. Like, to have that moment. 
and the way he said it, like it sounded so real, like I can't believe what I just saw. And that was what I was feeling, but I wasn't pressing it, you know? I couldn't believe that Kirk Gibson just won one leg. Yep. <laughs> just hit it off of Dennis Eckersley, yep. and Canseco didn't even move. He just, he just went, he just looked up and looked. So that moment, later on in life, I, I, I always had that with me. It was in the back of your head. It was in the back of my head. But, but you're that, just doing you. You're still doing yeah, your sales. That feeling. I'm it. doing the thing. I'm watching TV. I'm at Yankee Stadium. I have Madison Square Garden. I'm doing Chase Stadium. I'm, I'm involved in sports. Yeah. But I'm doing sales. Gotcha. And I wish I could tell you that I quit with a plan, but I didn't. I just, Which is probably makes the story even better that you just did it. <laughs> I, just, right? I just couldn't go to have to go to work. I've never been that kind of person that, that does something because... Because so you just have to. So what was the first job? Uh, doing play-by-play for some, Well, yes. So I, you went to broadcast school. Per I, se? Yeah, I went to Connecticut School of Broadcasting. Oh boy, I heard. I remember and, that. And I'm telling you, a lot of people here they have a Ohio yeah, Media Ohio, School. Ohio Media School. And I yes. always tell people, you know, a lot of people look down on it because I, it's, I tell you what, they don't tell you what you're gonna say on the air. But they take away all the fear of all that equipment, of all that looking at the camera, yep. and, they, and, and they do. I'm pretty sure the Ohio Media School does the same thing here, which is they do. You you do you learn copywriting, you learn production, you learn on air, you learn yep. radio. Like, and we were cutting tape. I don't know if yes. they still do it that way, but we learned to make commercials. Like cutting, I remember my, one of my one of my homeworks was to make a commercial of the Stevie Ray Vaughan. <laughs> okay. Uh, Stevie Ray Vaughan. And, really? and I made it up, you know, it was like his brother and Jimmy Page is gonna come in and, and every Clapton was gonna come in with his brother. So I remember that, like that home, we had to do the homework. Yeah. Like cutting the tape. Yeah, back in the which day, is, which is the way they used to do. And then we, used, I remember in one of the classes we had to do the weather. Okay. And we were using cards, and we have to use we have to do the sports update. And then produce a video. We had a, an event. It was really cool because they brought in, like, they took us to like a press conference. And so you get a, a feel for that. There was a plane accident by the like, Tiraboro Airport, and Whoa. we have to go. No, it's all made up, but it's like there was somebody giving the question. We had to ask the questions and then file the report. So nice. I got to see everything that was possible in the business of, of, of broadcasting, which I, I always tell people when I meet kids, you know, we do at the CAD, we have shadow students. And I always tell them, if you want to work with sports, just get a job yeah. at a sports team or, or a sports company because you don't know the possibilities inside. Once you get in there, you're going to realize there's all these other jobs yes. that you can do and you're just narrowing yourself to like, oh, I want to be a sportscaster. Maybe maybe you're better at, at Something a else, community yeah. relations. Maybe you're better at, at a, I don't know. Right. So it's about, but anyway, if you want to do broadcasting, once you're in, it's a lot better to move around and than, than coming in. So I wish I had a plan, but I didn't. You know, I, 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 my, I went to Connecticut School of Broadcasting, loved it. It's the first time in my life I'm going to school for something that I really want. You're really <laughs> I'm passionate really learning, I'm, I'm really going. And the day I finish, my friend that at the time worked for Univision calls me up and says, St. John's University is looking for a play-by-play announcer for their basketball team. Are you interested? And one of the good things about myself is that I have never said no, I'm like, even even though I don't know. You didn't give yourself a chance to have all the doubts creep in. No, I can't I just do said, this. yes, I'll yeah, do it. Yeah, I'll do it. What time? Yeah, so I went. 
for making a good amount of money and, 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 and being so good at it to making $150 a game. But I was, my first ever workout, my first ever game was the ECAC Holiday Classic. Wow. At Madison Square Garden. <laughs> you do not start in some... <laughs> Exactly. And I think that's one of the luxuries. You don't start in some small gym in Dubuque, yeah. Iowa. That's one of the luxuries our market provides because it's so new. I was one of the first when when all the teams started yeah. doing doing uh, Spanish broadcast. So, you know, I didn't like Joe Michael, my partner with the Cavs, he started in single A ball. Yes, he's Somewhere. worked his way up. He, yes. You know, in English, you have to work your way hockey. up. In, you, in your side of the yeah, business. Yeah, I worked in uh, you South worked, Dakota, yeah. Iowa, Buffalo. You know, the small market. Small so market. And you got to show great, yourself. And great experience. You started out in Madison Square Garden. I started in New York at the Mecca. So it, it was great. And I was loving it. I, I really had, I really had, was having a good time preparing for the game. It yeah. Was, it was a... Uh, Felipe Lopez last year. Okay. And then, uh, you know, there were some, a lot of players like Ron Artest or Ron Meta, Artest. Meta World yeah. Peace well, now. Yeah. He was there when I was there. Meta World and Peace. So it was, it was fun. It was, it was great. I was doing what I was doing, but I, I wanted more, you know? You got into boxing then? I got into, so I got into, so my good friend who worked at Univision left Univision and started a radio network. And a lot of, they, they had been, like two or three radio networks that had started nationally but okay. had not succeeded because it's a tricky thing. It's tough to yeah. do radio, national radio because in the morning people want to hear the traffic and the weather. They don't want to hear what's going on here in Cleveland. They don't want to hear what's going on in in Missouri or whatever. You know, they want they want to know. You know, I get it. So yeah. it was always hard. And he says, you know, I'm starting a uh, a radio network. So I'm not, I'm in. What do you want me to do? So. I needed to go to Las Vegas yeah. to do um, to cover a fight. So I started going to Las Vegas, and I swear to you that the first the first couple of, game, of fights that I went to, I was just me and a little tape recorder. It wasn't Did even... you know the art of boxing per se? I was a fan. Okay. I was a fan. I, I knew boxing. I knew I knew the I didn't know the, the all the intricacies yeah, of the business, but I, I knew I was a boxing fan. Fake it till you make it. Yeah. So, <laughs> and again, I never say no. Yeah. Then you want to do boxing? Yeah, I'll do boxing. So I go, and the first couple of trips, I, I kind of felt bad because I maybe I got one or two interviews, and but I quickly learned that boxing was a circle. And if you're not in that circle, you're, okay. in, you're not getting anything. So you had to work your way so in. So I have to work my way up. And, I, and again, and I, we did pretty well because that network ended up being bought by Univision, who became Univision Radio. Nice. And I had the account, when I took it, the account was purchasing like $35,000 a year in promotion. Okay. And by the time I left Univision, it was buying like 1.5 million of just wow. selling pay-per-views. So we did pretty well. You we did, did well. We did, we did very well. And then, so doing boxing, 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 I told my boss, I said, listen, if you want me to be good at this thing. I do some other stuff. You have to send me to cover all the fights, not just the Latino fights, because gotcha. I want to cover boxing for the boxing fan, right. not for the Latino boxing fan, for everybody. Okay. So I started, they started sending me, so I became really good friends with Oscar when Oscar De La Hoya was finishing oh, yeah. his career. Yeah. And he started. Did he kind of help you the most? Is, is like, he, learn the, the art he, of boxing? Well, he, he, 
in a way, it was more the promoters, like Bob Aaron was really good Bob to Aaron, me. Yeah, yeah. Always, you know, top rank him. was sure. always really good to me. He's a really, like a gentleman. Uh, top the buff, who is his son, who is his, his son, is also, you know, took over the company. But Bob Aaron was also very good. But he had the he had the fighters back in the day. Gotcha. Yeah, and, he did. And they still do. But now he what now is a little more complicated than than, than normal. But then Oscar, who fought for Top Rank, was starting his own promotional company, Golden Boy Promotion. So I'm like, you know, I'll help you. We'll we'll do the promotion. We'll do the thing. So that's. So you saw both sides of it. You were you were you were doing the. My job was to prom- sell pay per view. You, you you sold Just the pay per view. Sure. You did the the, the and fights I did some themselves. Play, I did some blow by blow. Interviewed the the fighters yeah. afterwards. The oh, it was the best. We used to go and spend two days in the training camp and just like see them mm-hmm. every all day like run. Really learn the really ins and the outs. Really learn spend time with Miguel Cotto in, in Puerto Rico, with, with Pacquiao in Los Angeles. Manny. With, with, we do. I did uh, when the world awaits uh, De La Hoya and, and Mayweather. Yeah. We did a 11 city tour in eight days, and I was I was the only. One of the you went to Latino all media that was on the plane. We used to go from one city to. We started in New York. We took the train to to Philadelphia. From Philadelphia, we took different jets to Washington. So from from Philly to Washington, I went with Oscar. Wow. From Washington to Dallas, I went to with on on Floyd's plane. Then from Dallas to Houston, I went with Oscar. That's and, crazy. And like that. So it was really it was, it was that was a fun time. It, it really. Vegas. It was a lot, a lot of time in Vegas. Yeah. Which cannot, that's where you got the name the mayor. We right? can, yes. We, can, <laughs> we cannot be good when you spend like three weeks a month in Vegas. But it, it was, it was, it was fun time. And, and and again, we we did a really good job as a company promoting the fight. So doing that, and again going back to the I don't know thing. My dream was always to do my own talk show. Oh, okay. You know, I always wanted to do that. Once, you know, my dream, my dream kept changing. Once, I, once I, once, sure. I, once I got one, I was like, okay, what am I going to do next? And we're in Vegas after a fight. We're hosting clients, and we're at a club, and it's literally like four in the morning, <laughs> and we are hanging with the people that manage um, the AutoZone account. AutoZone, the, the car place. Yeah, car, the car parts. So they, they're talking about, you know, we want to do a radio show. Uh, on, about cars, can you do it? I'm like, yeah, and I literally don't know anything. Didn't know a thing about cars. This just blows me away. This whole you're you're basically were the Latino click and clack. Yeah, and I and, and <laughs> let, let, let me tell you the story. So, <laughs> so we're at the bar back in the day. I still have my drinks, and I'm we're drinking, and it's like the end of the night, the end of, almost morning, and she's like, hey, can you do a, a show? You know, a, a, a car show? And I'm like, sure, yeah, we can. Okay, so call me next week. And we'll get together. I'm like, literally, John, I'm going home thinking I'm going to go to Barnes & Noble and buy a book on how yeah. to fix a, a, a yeah. Mustang. And oh my God. I'm going to figure something out, right? I'll yeah. put up a show. Keep up the BS, baby. <laughs> and <laughs> while I'm, and I'm not lying, I went to Barnes & Noble and I have a couple of books. You know, how to fix the Mustang. I always like the Mustang 65 convertible. So I'm like, awesome I'm going to start with that. It's like, like that. So at least I know, right? So I'm waiting in line at Amazon. <laughs> and you know how they have all these like impact items that you can actually buy. just put. And there is a, a cassette tape of click and clack. And I'm like, oh what the hell is God. that? And I'm like, click and clack. And I'm like, oh my God. So I bought it, and that's why I never, I'm never ashamed to say, I always try to be the Spanish click and clack. And I went home, 
put I would put the thing in my car, and that they, they, those guys were so good. I don't they know were if, so good. I don't know if they're still on the air, but they were. One so, of them's passed, I believe. Oh, okay, away. but they were so good they and were. entertaining. They were wonderful with the callers. Oh my god, they so were funny. So now I'm like, yes, that, I got my road. Now I just gotta get myself a mechanic because I have nothing about car. We got half of the deal here. <laughs> So we found a mechanic through the station on, uh, in New York, and I became the clown of the show. That's okay. I became the, the guy that would bring the mechanic down to a one-on-one level. Yeah. One-on-one level. When Break he started it down. talking about all these like turns, and like, wait, so what does that mean? So we, you know, we did a yeah. show, it was called El Garaje de AutoZone, the AutoZone yep. Garage. Auto, yep. It lasted like 12 years, made a lot of money for the state, for the company, and what we did was, we had, we opened a show with like a, a topic, how to change your oil, how to change a tire, you know, how, recommendations on how sure. often you need to change your oil. Yeah. And then we took phone calls. You, that's it. And people reacted to that show so well. It was once a week, an hour, and we used to get close to a thousand phone calls during the week. That wanted to be on the show. People would call and say, hey, this is John. I have a 1978 <laughs> uh, Ma- Mazda, whatever, Toyota, Toyota Camry, and it's making this noise. And my mechanic <laughs> was so good. He'd break it down. He would know exactly even what color the car was because of the problems the cars had. He knew kind of like the, the tendencies of the problems this, this, the vehicles had. And so we, we did really, I became the spokesperson for Castro Motor Oil. Wow. Who was like you know Castro GTX yeah. high mileage and like for, and and it was good it was it worked great so from there I got my sports show okay. I actually became good on the radio I guess I was so I became I got my talk show it was called Locura Deportiva Sports Madness Sports Madness and yep. the thing was when I moved to Miami from New York they they hired me at Univision as the sports director they had a two hour show that talked exclusively about soccer. Oh. And most of it was Mexican soccer. The 70, 70 plus percent of the population, the Spanish population in the Who's US found? is Mexican. Okay. So they were going for the... So my, my first move as a sports director was to change the show from sports madness, one hour, and soccer madness, one hour. So you can do whatever you want with that hour, and I'll talk about everything. But you guys go crazy on the soccer. I'll yeah. do the wacky yeah. stuff. Yeah, and I'll do. To, I'll talk soccer too. Yeah, during the World Cup, during the, the Champion Final, we'll talk soccer too. But but I did it my own style. I I never been a guy that takes sports seriously. Sure. I was always the I was I, I, I was always the clown. I was always the guy who always found some humor. Yeah. Humor on everything. So we talk about. You know, so now we got another outlet to promote the boxing. So we got the UFC to jump on board. We were doing boxing. We were doing the World Series. We had the rights for the NFL. So we became yes, we became the, the place to to go when you wanted to reach the, the Hispanic sports fan. So who who made the decision to get you to Cleveland in '14 when when LeBron came back? Was it? The Cavs directly, or was yeah. it people Univision said? Well, no, no, I had led Univision at the time. Okay. I had done 13 years with them, and I had brought in, you know, it was it became a point of, like, I'm bringing a lot of money, and, and, and I'm not really getting any, I, I understood, like, the big the biggest part of the pie was 
for them, but it was so it became. I, I left very amicably, and I, yeah. I, I admire everybody there. And then the show that I that I started still on the air, and yeah. now it's on TV and radio. Yeah. You know, it's going on to our first year on, on Locura Deportiva was the the, the Monday after Katrina hit. Oh, so wow. it's like 2005. Yeah, 2005. August 29th we started. So and it's still on the air. So that's and they still have some segment that I that I cool. put on the show. So it kind of it feels good. That's nice. So by the time I had left Univision, and I was working with another company in the in the in the in the broadcasting business, and I was going through some hard times at home. You know, going through my divorce and. Sure. Literally, you know, I'm not lying to you. I'm a devout of, of Saint Jude, yeah. the, the, the patron, co- the, the patron of causes. all the lost causes and everything. And I was at a lost point in my life. I was trying to find what to do, and I'm walking my dog, and I, I literally sitting in the park in the dark, and I'm going, you know, Saint Jude, it's you, you, the, you, the guy that's yeah. right for this moment right now. You know, I need a show me, show me the way. Give me a sign. Give me a sign, right? I'm not lying to you, I get a text, like, <laughs> somebody jokingly says, hey, look who's looking for Spanish brokers, the Cavs. So I'm, <laughs> I applied immediately, right there sitting in the I park. know everything about <laughs> basketball. <laughs> I had done basketball, I had, I, done, I had done the Knicks, I had done the Nets. So yeah. I, oh, that's right, you were like, St. John, you know, I was started. like, and, and I text, and then the next day, Dave Dombrowski, who is yeah, my Dave, boss no, here. No, and, well, great guy. And, and Tom Wilson, who is the owner of, uh, of the station, called me up, and they're like, you know, listen, we're very deep into the, into the process, but send us your stuff. Send us your stuff. And I, I think I had more to offer than the other candidates, because not only I was doing the Nets at the well, time. Well, you had a wealth of broadcasting so my broadcast, my, my demo was like, oh, I was doing the Spanish League for TV on Univision, you know, wow. the... the, the just the, the, on TV, but I had audio and I have video, so I sent it up and I said, you know, listen, come for, come, for the, come for the interview. So I came in and I was thrilled with everything about the Cavs and the company and and it just made so much sense. And LeBron was already here. Okay. Yeah. So. Uh, the first year was 14, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, my first year was okay. 14, and okay. it just made so much sense at the time. I, I I never worked for a team directly. When I did the Nets, when I did the Jets, when I did St. John's, when I did all these other teams, I did the Dolphins, I worked, the station paid me, and gotcha. the station took care of everything. So I never really was invested in the, the way I am now. company. Yeah, and just being part of the team. And it was, it was, just, it was just so, you know, inviting to me. And uh, it was the right decision for me to make, I think, you know, five years down the road. And I'm like, you know, I, I, don't, I don't think I would change anything. I, How much do you enjoy doing the NBA versus college? Um, have you changed your craft in any way, shape, or form? Or yeah, how you, you know, do games? You change every day. Yeah. I, I listen to myself every day. I think there's nobody to critique you better than yourself. So I, I think I changed in a different game, basketball, college, and, and the NBA. But, you know, with, with the NBA, it's easy in a way because I'm with the guys all the time. Yeah. So you're traveling with the team. Well, that's my job. You tra- you're traveling with the team. You're embedded. I'm, I'm embedded, correct. When I was doing the NFL, I still had my talk show. I had the boxing game. I had the, everything. You're juggling a lot of balls. I, I was juggling, and maybe I wasn't as prepared as I should have. But I have, you know, we made it through. But now is, this is my job. This is this is what I do. So it 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 it, it, it doesn't make it, it doesn't mean it's easy. You know, it's at least a ten hour 
prep time for every game because you, mm-hmm. you want to be. I think preparation in our business is what separates you. From, I agree. From from the rest, and 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 you know we have a group of guys that are probably the most prepared guys in the business that I have known, and I'm not, I'm not saying it just because it's the Cavs or because it's, they're my co-worker, but you know, John Michael is one of yeah, the Yeah, he's tremendous. He's just one of the best guys that I have ever And And he's like you. Prepare. You know, he was doing he something else. Yeah. <laughs> he was and a he lawyer. Did, he was a lawyer, he was a, a trial lawyer. Yeah. And he changed the arc of his career, yeah. uh, just as you did. It's like that, that book they write about, uh, you don't, you know, the cheese is here, but you want the cheese over there, you just move yeah. the cheese. To where where it's you know where it's yeah. gonna be best for you. But again, we it kind of it helps you. Like Fred is also a Fred McLeod is a guy. Yeah, I've like known Fred himself like crazy. So it, it it helps you. It helps me to know. I'm sure that I have to good. stay on my I have to stay on my toes because these guys are you know right. they're, 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 they're we all good at it. And I think that's all a, a reflection on, on on the way Dave runs the, the operation. Dave's we great. all we all we're all able to. To do not what we want, but to do it the way we want it. it the only condition is just make sure you do your job, make sure you prepare, make sure you yeah. you stand out above and beyond everybody else. And I think we all do as a as a group, as a team. And 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 and, and it, it's just amazing to see how you know how these guys work. It's not just yeah. you know one guy or the other, you know, everybody, everybody's, they, you know, Jim Jones, the guy. We all we're all embedded. I work. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know how all the teams do it. I don't know if they are allowed to go to practice every day. We have part of my job is to go to practice and shoot around everything. That's a great thing to have, and it's evolved. And at home. It's evolved over the years. In yeah. fact, if I can just uh, take a quick trip back mm-hmm. in time, when like Lenny back in the day, Lenny Wilkins would allow all of us to watch every second of practice. Yeah. That doesn't happen anymore. Damn. You know, we come in the regular <laughs> media. We come in when they're shooting free throws, and that's how it is. And that's yeah. all, that's all well and good. But you're with the team. You should have access. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and but I, I don't think every team does. Okay, I, I get. You. I don't think every team in the NBA allows their, their sportscasters to to do. You know. Yeah, they just have a certain. And it helps control. us because obviously we have to abide by a certain rule, unwritten rule that yeah. there are things that we see that are not for public consumption. Yeah, there's a. But there are things that help that yeah. we see that help us kind of see what's coming up in the game or how to prepare for the game, you know, at right. least we know in the morning who's starting or who's not. Maybe the, maybe the coach won't let everybody know until, until Later. he has to release it in the afternoon, but at least now I know I don't have to prepare or I don't have for to a worry. Guy. I yeah. don't have to worry about X guy, but I have to be ready because this other guy is going to be playing more, you're going to be playing more minutes now, yeah. so you got to be ready with what was it like with just, you know, obviously the most famous basketball player in the world, the best player in the world, when LeBron was with the team for four years? Obviously, it was everything he said was newsworthy in many ways. We, we, had, to, we had to kind of take that tact. If you were going to talk to LeBron about an aspect, not just about basketball, but what's going on in the United States uh, or the world, <laughs> it would make news. And you and I'm sure you are around some stuff that probably goes back to what you're saying. It remains with the team. It remains yeah, you know, we, inside stuff. I have I, I consider it a luxury and an honor to watch this guy do his thing every day. Same here. Day to in, see him from high school day all the in and day out, and you see the work that he puts in. Yes, he has the talent. Yes, he has the ability, but yeah. he also puts in the hours and, and and puts his body through some serious work I mean and 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 that thing that that being said just to watch him do his thing and see how good 
here is how. People don't understand, you know, you always see people, the fans see the dunking and the plays and the triple doubles and all that. Yeah. But when you see him practice, I don't think people quite understand how high his basketball IQ is. It, it really it is, is unbelievable. I think it's knows, the best in the game. How he knows what he knows, what's going on, what's going to happen, what's going to happen if you run this play or if you're not on this side. And I don't think I don't think there are many players in the NBA that actually have that ability to to to, to see that. To, I mean, he can play all five positions. He knows yep. all five positions. He in can the, guard in the, them all on the play. So he can run. He can run the point guard. He can run. He can be the side. He can be the two. He can be the three. So. A lot of things that he does are not really there for public viewing unless you really go in and dissect what he does. And that's why I always, you know, I criticize LeBron more as a fan when, because I, I, I grew up a Celtics fan for my years in Boston. Yeah, you, he, he was to, the enemy. He sure. used to kill <laughs> the Celtics all the time, most of the time. So I, I never, and my show was in Miami. And when he was in Miami, I kind of hated how everybody was just, you know, with the heat, with the new big three. I, yep. I still think the Celtics were the original big three, but don't don't say that, don't say that to the Heatles. But I, I, I my show was about controversy, and my controversy was poking, pushing buttons, and there was no button easier to push. And to push a LeBron fan button in Miami, and it works were, to this day. Cleveland yeah, fans and, and LA, LA fans. So or, I remember or, when when I came to Miami, a lot of my friends were like, "Oh my God, you're gonna be working with LeBron." I'm like, "Yeah, of course, I'm rooting for him now. He's my teammate." You know, I, I, not that I don't root, not that I root against him now, but if he's playing with the Cavs, I'm yeah. rooting for him. Absolutely. You know, I'm, that, that's simple as it is. It's like the Celtics never paid me a penny to be their fan. The moment I be, I was hired by the Cavs, and like I tell Dave, I, I get resigned on two week contracts every two weeks. I'm a Cavs fan. I bleed, I bleed one and goal. <laughs> so, and it, any, everybody would do that. But again, when when you see. The things that he does, you know, people will criticize like, oh, LeBron is a GM, LeBron is this. When you have a person that capable of helping you, of the fact that he has been there and done that, of course you're gonna take his up, you're gonna take his yeah. point into consideration. He's the guy, he's the coach on the court. Absolutely. You know, so there's nothing. I, I never saw anything wrong. No and difference again, than Tom Brady running the yeah, show. and I never saw him disrespect anybody that has some position of authority, like coaches or yeah. assistant coaches. He he was always there because he wanted to win. Yeah. And I think when you're not on that on his side, that might bother people. I can remember in LeBron 1.0 before he went to Miami, asking, I think it was it was Mike Brown, how do you quantify what you have as a team when you have someone that is so good at what LeBron does? Mm -hmm. Because there are aspects that maybe he kind of masks or covers up for because of the extraordinary talents and intuitive nature in basketball he has. And I don't think you can get a real good answer to that because there are so you many can. things he does. It's you just. Can. And I tell you what, when I, my first year, 2014, remember he had problems with his back and his wrist. Yeah. And he was out like. He was out for a little while. Like, had a, a shot, few weeks. Own shot or some kind of weeks. shot. Yeah. We were on the road <clears throat> when he came back, and we were practicing at Grand Canyon University. John, I'm telling you, the noise in that gym when he came back was so noticeable. 
and so different. The the steps, the running, and he always like when they when they um, when they do scrimmage, he always play with the with the with the with the second unit. He always played against the starters. But the way that everybody, it, it, that's what he brings to the team. Yeah. That that those are talking about quantifying things. Yeah. He, everybody practices harder when when when. Everybody's at attention more. And everybody, uh, there's competition in practice. There's no, don't don't think it's just, yeah. you know, like going through the plays and everything. They they want to beat each other even in practice. <laughs> it's a, it is unbelievable to see how uh, how that that works out. It's amazing, but. Above all that, what I have been able to witness from LeBron off the court, yep. it just blows everything on the court out of the, not, And I'm not talking to you about this, his school and all the great work he does. The way he is with children, with kids, it, it's just unbelievable. It, it, he doesn't, he really puts himself out there. And, and, and again, you know, nothing against the guy. He, everybody makes decisions and for, 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 the, for their own benefit, right? right. But he, he he's quite a guy. He's, he's quite a quite a human being off the court as well. Well, now you go from LeBron James to Baker Mayfield, <laughs> Nick Chubb, Denzel Ward, and of course this year you're looking at OBJ and and all. What was your first season like as the play-by-play voice for the Browns? Well, it had to be really exciting. It was amazing because it, once again you jump in and the team gets good. <laughs> And I, I don't want to take credit for it, but hey, you know, it makes sense, right? The Cavs won the title when I came. Yes. Um, that's why I told I told Dan Gilbert every time I see him, but you can't you can't get rid of me. All I do is go to finals, except for this last year. But it was incredible. I was a little, I want to say tenary because the second they offered it to me, I said yes. <laughs> you know, I go doing football is so much. It's so much different and so much yeah. fun because the preparation is just... It's, it's a great feeling in that it's, stadium it's, when, especially when the team's doing well. Not, one is better than the other, but it's just a different... And you're in a football town. Yeah. It's huge. And that's the thing. I always heard... Now you know, you know. Especially before I came in, it was like a 1-31 one yeah. record. And Joe Gabriel, who is the beat yeah. writer for, for the good Cavs. Good guy. Good, good Actually, man. Actually, he's, he's not the beat writer. He's the, we always tease with him. He's like the, the, he's, the, 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 the founder of Cavs.com. You know, he worked with NBA.com when they started doing it. He used to cover, like, different teams. So he's my, he's my partner on the plane. And he always tells he's me, a good dude. If, the Cavs, if, if you saw what the Cavs did for the, for the parade, if the Browns win the championship, you won't be able to put. No. None of I don't know what you're gonna do. <laughs> I, I don't even know where you're gonna hold. Like, the that's what he. That's what he said. Like if they win the title, you, Cleveland won't know what to do with. Streets with, aren't you know, big enough. <laughs> <laughs> so I was always. I came to Cleveland when I was doing the NFL, the national games, probably like a couple times. But the NFL trips are so different because you come in the day before. And then you leave the next day, you know, in the morning, one o'clock flight, one o'clock, one o'clock uh, game. So you have to be at the stadium at eight a.m. So there's really not nothing to do. So I never really went out. Yeah, out you of couldn't. The hotel. You didn't give you a chance to. So I didn't know anything about Cleveland. I knew about the Browns. I knew about the miserable days, and I knew about the whole, you know, the Art model lead yeah. taking the yeah. team and everything. So when they offered it to me, I said yes, I'm not taking it. But I was a little hesitant about knowing. Our Cavs season was going was a, was not going to be a 60 win season, 
And you know, I don't care what anybody says. Losing sucks. It does. And I hate it. And and I don't care. And I know you're not gonna go undefeated in the NBA, but it, it it's not fun. It's it's. So I was like, mm, I don't know if I want to get into this. You know, there's more losses, and I have to deal with. You know. So I but I, I took it, and and it, right off the bat, it felt different. You know. And I have to tell you, going back to what you were asking me about Jack Buck. Yeah. The call. Yeah. Who, by the way, is one of the was one of the most nicest gentlemen. I met him and I explained to him my situation, and he was so happy to hear from me. And he gave me tips, and he used to call me, and every time we saw each other, he used to tell me like most of the things that I still practice. Jack Buck told nice. me to do, like to listen to myself, to do exercises with my voice, to do that so. And and so that moment, the I don't believe what I just saw. To me. Now is Kyrie Irving's shot in game seven. But the moment Baker Mayfield came on the field against the Jets, against the Jets, you know, when you do football, and of course, you know, the, the budget in Spanish is, I always say my, our budgets are also in Spanish. So, like, I don't have that many. I, don't have, I didn't notice uh, Tyra Taylor being hurt. Because we, okay. our booth yeah, is he on, kinda, he got knocked out of on the yeah, our booth is on the end zone, gotcha. opposite the, the dog pound. So the bench is on our right. Yeah. So I didn't, you know, and there's so much going on. I didn't notice, but I did hear the roar of the crowd, and then I feel a thump, and Joji, the Tommy goes, I look, and I go, oh my God, there it is, and it felt like out of a movie, John, the the moment. And the way he came in and completed, like he had more yards in those last two drives in the first half than, than both quarterbacks had together. It felt like one of those scenes that you see in the movie and you're like, come on, does it really, is he really gonna do well because he comes yeah. in and he's like, <laughs> it's just, you know, the Hoosiers moment. Yeah. And, and that's how he felt. It was, it, that was one of those moments that it, it was just amazing to see the crowd in Cleveland. Cause I think the Cleveland fans, are amazing, the football fan. They just, really are. It's just unbelievable. And Joe Gio was told me, you know, if you put a helmet in the middle of the of progressive of uh, First Energy Stadium in the middle of February and it's snowing, people would show up just to see the helmet. He's right. He's <laughs> absolutely. He, I mean, this is a city that had a parade for an 0 and For an 0 16, right? Yeah. Team, to send a message to management, to send a message to the team that. We're loyal fans, but there's a point. Yeah. And, and, you know, the uh, good thing that the Browns have gotten so much better. Well, you had your own kind of, you know, I can't believe what I just saw moment when Nick Chubb goes 94 Oh, my God, yards. 94 yards. 94 yes. yards. Yeah, that was against uh, Atlanta. It was, it was one of those moments. Uh, believe it or not, I have never watched the Terminator. But it's one of those phrases that become, you know, part of the folklore. And it just... One of the things that I, I always tell people is, for the most part, I would, I would, I would, I would think I can take the advantage of speaking for everybody, but that's what I do. It's like, we don't plan. No, you can't. What comes out of our mouth. Like, I really have to go back, that touchdown, you know, they, the Browns do a really good job of putting a, a GoPro camera in my booth, yeah. So then they can post the highlight with with my reaction, which is, which is something the fans like it's to good. see. I right? think people like to see that stuff. And right off the bat, Joe, uh, Jason Gibbs, right after the game, he goes, "Hey, send me the play." And like, what happened? How did that play go? I'm like, I don't remember what I said. I just, I know I went crazy, but I don't remember what I said. <laughs> 
So I come home and I edit what I recorded. And I, first of all, I'm, pray, I'm praying. I'm like, please make sure, please, please, please make hope that it came out right. You know, because you don't know. Sometimes without a spotter or without, you don't know. You like, there've been times last season. There was a time when I called against the against the Raiders. I called Nick Chubb running the ball the whole time, but it wasn't Nick Chubb. It was it was um, what's his name that got traded. The OSU Carlos Hyde. Carlos Hyde. Yeah. It was Carlos Hyde running the ball, but back, you know, yeah. from where we sit. Right. So first of all, I'm praying, I'm praying that I call the whole, the call right for right of the bat, and I thank God I did. But I don't know what came to my mind. That was the first thing that came to my mind, and out of my mouth when I saw him break the last tackle or yeah. get avoid the last guy, which is you know, hasta la vista, baby. <laughs> So he came out, thank God he came out good, because everybody wanted to see that. That was probably the play of the year for, for uh, even though there were so many after. But that was the moment of last season to me that it was just, you know, you, you, don't, you don't prepare for those moments. You, you, you can't. You prepare for after the run, okay, that's, that's Nick Chubb, longest touchdown in his career, da 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 da, da. <laughs> you know? yeah, or something, And that's something you have. And, yeah, something you but know. But you don't prepare. Yeah, you know that, play. you know, if this guy hits a home run, this is the 50th home run of the You're year. Ready. This is the third year in a row he's had 50 or, right. or whatever it might be. Well, obviously, you're in a great position now with the, you know, the Browns being so much better. Let's bring this to present day, but the sport that you're very well versed in, in boxing. What happened over the weekend? Oh my with God. Andy Ruiz. <laughs> what in the world? What did you think going in? And well, when, I haven't been following the sport as much as you know. Cause I've been covering some of the pay-per-view, especially on the heavyweights. Yeah. You know, I I covered the the Wilder Fury first one and and. When I saw the Wayne and I saw Andy Ruiz get in the get on the scale, yeah, he didn't look like he just went through a six-week training camp, right? I mean, <laughs> right, yeah. I sent a picture to my trainer and I said, "Hey, I don't think I'll be coming over <laughs> I don't anymore. Need you. I, don't, I don't need you anymore." <laughs> this guy just this guy just beat Adonis and he and, did. and won three three heavyweight fight uh, title, but that's what happens in boxing. It, it, it's not like in other sports where you, it's like one in a lifetime upset. In boxing, you can't take anybody lightly. And then also, to be honest with, with everybody, like he boxes a lot better than he looks. Yeah. John Reed, I mean, uh, yeah. Andrews, he, 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 yeah, he, he really moves. He really throws. He's really good at the jab. He's really good going back Quick and, on his feet, and, and very well prepared. So yeah. that being said, I still don't know how he shows up like that. And he obviously doesn't have a nutritionist. <laughs> I, and of course, I, I looked on you know social media was having a field day with people making fun, but there he was at the end, and there is you know he's the heavyweight freaking champ of the yeah. world. And now he's a big conflict. Now it's going to be what happens because he is managed by the same people that manage. Wilder. So now they all have, they both have all the titles. Yeah. And this is the he wasn't even the, the opponent. The original opponent yep. got taken out because he failed a, a drug test. Yep. So he took it. He's like, hell yeah, I'll take it. And this guy's only had one loss. He's like yeah. 32 and one. I'm so happy, especially about social media, because I went into it and I look at his record. He's like 32 and one or 33 and one now. But like you know, 20 fights are eight rounds or less. He's fought. 12 or 13 guys with double-digit losses. 
He's 25 of the, of the opponents, have more than five losses. So I was, I was about to, like, who is this guy? Yeah. But I saw Freddie Roach talking about him, and he spoke so highly of his boxing. So that, to me, that's it. Uh, that, that, that stopped doubting him. Right. And then I saw other guys just talking. They call him the, the Mexican Rocky. Yeah. <laughs> And, and now he's very apropos, right? Like, so I once Freddie Roach commented in a good manner about his boxing. I was okay, let me watch. So I watched the fight. I literally sat there and watched. Boxing is, and I'm telling you because I love the sport, but it's it's so disappointing sometimes. And I always say, people always say, oh no, that's it, boxing is done. It's yeah, like, that's the end of the sport. Boxing was <laughs> born with a black eye. And it's never gonna go away. It's never gonna happen. And people are gonna always love the fact of seeing two human beings beating the crap, beating the crap out, out of each other. <laughs> and, and there's nothing wrong with it. People might see it wrong, but there is something. It's like a Roman times, you know, the present time. You're seeing two guys, bet the they're best at what they do, and they're punching each other. Who? Everybody likes that. It's like people watch NASCAR for the accidents, right? For the crashes. They're like. Boxing is not going to go away. There's a lot of things that need to work. They need to I think a lot of people were waiting for Joshua to win so they could have the undefeated heavyweight champ fighting for the title unification. But that's what happens. And you plan. And you know, you Best laid of plans of Bison <laughs> Man. <laughs> I'm sure John Reed, I mean, uh, Andy Reed had uh, other plans. You know, he became the first... Heavyweight champion of Mexican From descent. Mexico. I think that's he pretty awesome. He was born here, but Mexico has never had a heavyweight champion, and now they do. Now they, you know, he he earned. I mean, he beat him. He did. And not only that. He beat him after getting up, getting from the camera. I think that's what the mistake that Joshua made. He had two minutes. He dropped him yeah. early in the fourth round. Yeah. And he rushed because I think he had to wait, and he 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 opened himself up to whatever. I'm sure, obviously now we know Ruiz has heavy hands. He does. But uh, he just he, that was his mistake, and he was lost from that point on. Yeah. Wow. He just he just couldn't take it. So that that is the, the beauty about boxing. It'll it'll it'll, it'll take you back. <laughs> well, Rafa, you've had a knockout of a of a of a career. It's been a it's been an outstanding pleasure to uh, chat with you, and I wish you nothing but the best, my man. Thank you so much. I'll make a special a special episode on the on the Browns parade when we. When we <laughs> <do>. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks once again to Rafa for a great conversation. It was so much fun to kind of unpack some of the episodes in his life, the life decisions that he made to put him on the course for where he is today. And also a shout out to the people with the Cavaliers. They have other programming that is not just strictly that what Rafa does in terms of the Spanish broadcasts for the Cavaliers. He's involved on the Cavaliers show on Sports Time Ohio and Fox Sports Ohio, as I should say. And so you can find Rafa out there doing Cavs-related stuff. And then he gets in that football booth, and it's hasta la vista, baby. And that is a lot of fun to hear. So thanks again to Rafa. Thank you for listening. Kindly go to the iTunes area, the Google 
uh, podcasts area, any platform that you can find this podcast on. We're on pretty much every one. And give us a kind little rating and also subscribe if possible. It continues to get the work on this podcast out there so that more and more people can hear it. I appreciate you listening. Thanks once again to Rafa, and we'll see you the next time on Tellage Talks.